to hold and give and do it at the right time and the right time is now to do a podcast about the football like Jason Derulo. I'm riding solo for this episode 27 because Clive F, he is a very sensible man. He only works when he's getting paid but we're here anyway. It's the festive season. It's the holiday season. Whatever you're doing this week, I hope you're all having a wonderful time with all those sincere niceties out the way. Let's start the podcast like we always do here on the Holding Gear Football Podcast by looking at Clive F's normal segment, but it's mine this week, so if anything's wrong, I'll take all the flack. What happened on this day in football history? Today, I'm sat here the morning of December the 21st, and it's a happy birthday to former Leicester defender Daniel Amati, who I've not read many complimentary things about on the X.com just now, but let me tell you, on FIFA 22, he was rated about 78, 79, and he was an admirable replacement centre-half for my Newcastle career mode, which I played all on me, Todd. So, Daniel Amati, you might be crap in real life, but you'll always have a special place in my heart because of FIFA 22. Celebrating their birthday today as well is Ben Chilwell, who was born in 96, and Kuyate, that midfield stalwart, who was born all the way back. I say all the way back. He was born in 1989, but I guess it was a long time ago now. We're all going to die soon. So, happy birthday to those three lads there. In 1994, December the 21st, I should say as well, Ian Taylor joined Aston Villa. He is, or was, and still probably is, a a lifelong Aston Villa fan. He joined them from Sheffield Wednesday. In his first season, Taylor helped Villa to stay in the Premier League, and then he played a key part, it's written down here, as they finished fourth the following year, netting against Manchester United. Wimpleton! It's 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 a Simpsons reference. I know it's not actually Wimpleton, but Krusty the Clown and all that sort of stuff. And Southampton he scored against as well, crucially. And he also scored in the 1996 League Cup final, which of course Aston Villa won. He was a midfielder. He was a bit box-to-box. He liked a goal. I think he scored around 28 or something during his time with Aston Villa. I remember names like Julian Joachim being in the Aston Villa team around this time as well. I don't know why I threw that in there. I know football. I was alive in the 90s. That's all I've proved there. But Ian Taylor joined Aston Villa on this day back in 94 because, kids... Oh, I felt horrible saying that. Because, kids, the transfer window didn't become a thing until, like, 2003. So you could join teams any time of the year back in the 90s. Anything happened, it was fantastic. On this day in 1996, Manchester United 5, Sullen nil at Old Trafford. Uh, Man United com- comfortably beating the Mackham thanks to goals from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Eric Cantona, who both got braces, while Nicky Arse himself was also on target who was known more commonly as Nicky. But this is, of course, the game where Eric Cantona has the collar up. The Mackham goalkeeper, Mr. Perez, he's wearing that yellow number. Cantona chips him, edge of the box. He does the pose, the collar's up. It's 90s football. It's fantastic stuff to see, even when, like myself, you're a Newcastle fan. And around this time, Man United were the scourge of Newcastle United because they were just better and more composed. But Kevin Keegan, I still love you. Um, the, re- the result, I should say, left Manchester United fifth around this time of the year on 31.7 behind the pace set as Liverpool, while Sunderland were on 14, or, or in 14th place on 20 points, five points above the relegation zone. On to 1996 as well. Not on to 1996. On the same day in 1996, while this Sunderland versus 
Man United game was going on. Middles better were due to visit Blackburn Rovers for a Premier League game, but the fixture was called off by Middles better because they had, and you think Newcastle's injury list at the moment is bad. Man United's injury list at the moment is bad. They both pale in comparison to Liverpool, uh, Liverpool? to Middles better's 23 players they had unavailable for this fixture away at Blackburn because of illness, injury and suspension. No permission was given for the postponement by the Premier League though, which meant that Middlesbrough were not only fined £50,000 which is a lot of money for that for back then for that sort of thing, but they were also docked three points. Now you might be thinking that doesn't really sound like much, three points in the, in the grand scheme of a season, doesn't sound too bad but it does sound bad come the end of the 96-97 campaign when of course Middles better were relegated just two points from safety so without the deduction they would have survived by one point with the deduction they went down I think it was Leeds away on the final day of the season I can just picture Jean, 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 let me put my teeth in Jorginho sat on his arse on the pitch wearing a shirt that was seven sizes too big for him because it was the 90s and just picture that on a sunny day at Elland Road hopefully I'm right if I'm wrong let me know in the comments down below and also on this day, in 1999, Rivaldo was named the best player in the world, or best player in Europe, I should say, ahead of Man United midfielder David Beckham and Milan striker Andre Shevchenko. I can't believe Andre Shevchenko was playing for AC Milan in 1999. So on the fly, on the Hold and Give Football podcast, I'm going to Google that, because it feels like it was too soon for that to be happening. And I've just copied and pasted something from an untrustworthy website. But no, he did join AC Milan in in 1999, he left in 2006 for Chelsea, of course. 127 league goals in 208 league games. He wasn't bad, but he just wasn't suited to the Premier League, which I guess is why he's not as fondly remembered by a certain vintage of Premier League fan as he is from fans of European football before that. But that's all I could find about what happened on this day in football history. Clive will be back in a couple of weeks' time in 2024 to regain the throne of Clive F. I'm a current standing Clive F. And let me tell you, it's a big, big, precious seat. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying now. The week in football. Let's take a look at what happened in football uh, this week. Uh, Newcastle, of course, were, I guess, the big headline makers in the Carabao Cup this week, getting knocked out by Chelsea in the quarterfinals after a penalty shootout. First and foremost, how nice was it to have a game of football without VAR as a fan of a Premier League side? It feels like absolutely bloody ages since we had a game without VAR. It was nice to know what football felt like before VAR. It was nice to know when the referee's whistle blew after uh, Brogia's disallowed goal. It was a disallowed goal. There was no going back on that. Because um, I've said it might be weird for, to hear me say that as a Newcastle fan because, of course, Newcastle were... What's the word I'm looking for? Robbed by VAR this time because Chelsea should have had at least two players sent off or maybe just one. Definitely Caicedo should have been sent off. But again, I've said it many times on this podcast and accept I can accept a human error when it's from one human, but I can't accept human error when it's from the human on the pitch and then the humans, three or four of them, at Stockley Park who operate the VAR. Caicedo in the first half, I don't care how early that is in the game, it's a red card, but again, the referee gets it wrong, it's just him who got it wrong, he's a human, I don't mind, I'm that against VAR, I'm not even that mad that Caicedo should have been sent off in the first half, and he should have been sent off in the second as well, because he raked his studs all the way down 
uh, from the back of Anthony Gordon's knee all the way down to his ankle, yet he still escaped a red card. The second player was referring to about the VAR, bo- VAR bollocks from Stamford Bridge was Colwell's challenge on Kraft in the first half. Kraft goes in for a slide tackle. Colwell stamps on his shin when he's on the, sort of in a in a in a laid down, in a chaise long position in the midst of his sliding tackle. But again, I don't mind the fact that it was a single man making a single error. Again, I hate it that all VAR does has exposed these decisions to several more layers of human error. Get rid of VAR. It was fine before, it'll be fine after, or at least until it's actually fit for purpose. In terms of the game, the first half, Newcastle were clearly setting up just to counter-attack Chelsea as and when the opportunity arose, and that's what they did in the sixth minute when Callum Wilson somehow got through two defenders to slot it away for a, uh, a nice finish at the end of a bit of a jammy run, let's just call it that. You know, On a different day, I think the defenders would deal with that quite easily but he slots it away for, for something like his 46th goal in 100 games which when you remember two years of his or maybe just over a year of his Newcastle no two years of his Newcastle career was spent under Steve Bruce where it was let's put 10 men behind the ball and just kick it lane that's what he would say in his Geordie d- dialect um, that considering he had that time under Steve Bruce now obviously it's only likely been the, the past sort of two years under Eddie Howe where things have got going again despite the injuries coming back from injuries that sort of stuff it's a wonderful record to, for him to get uh, 46 goals in 100 games um, but that paled in comparison because Chelsea I thought dominated large portions of the game, much of the second half. It felt a bit like PSG versus Newcastle in the Champions League a little while ago at the Parc de Prince, but where in that game, PSG just squandered several fantastic opportunities and they probably should have scored a goal before they did score the goal right at the end. In dubious circumstances, we've all been down that road before. Chelsea had all the ball but didn't really break down Newcastle with many clear-cut opportunities. I remember Dubravka making one save to his right-hand side in the second half uh, as Newcastle were kind of clinging on, but as I say there, Chelsea weren't creating too many chances here thinking, oh, Newcastle maybe on the balance of play don't deserve to win the game, but they could escape with a 1-0 victory and get to the semi-finals in the competition where... I think they would fancy their chances a lot more than they would have done this time last year with the teams that were still in the competition. But then Kieran Trippier, who came on as a half-time substitute for Emil Kraft, who was, again, solid, I thought, after his good game against Fulham at the weekend. Trippier comes on, a ball gets whipped in. I think he's trying to head it back to the goalkeeper, but it's bounced a bit too high, um, or higher than he was anticipating, I should say. And it doesn't go anywhere, and it just allows Mudrick to sort of steal in Put it in the bottom corner. Two minutes into stoppage time. Heartbreak for Newcastle. Heartbreak for Kieran Trippier. But I just want to take the attention away from Kieran Trippier for a second because Miguel Almiron needs a slap around the face. Why is he shooting from basically the byline so the goal line essentially wide on the left when Newcastle's 1-0 up a minute into well maybe it was just heading into stoppage time of the game and he's trying to score from the most acute of angles what's he doing there just take it into the corner you're never going to score let's waste some time Miggy you silly little boy <laughs> that's where my attention was because Trippier it's the latest mistake in a horrible run of mistakes that is directly leading to goals for the opposition 
Obviously, a lot of attention is now being paid to why he withdrew from the England squad for the last international break because ever since he got or came back from that. But to be honest with you, he was having a couple of stinkers just before that international break as well. This isn't a direct correlation between him coming back from England duty because of a personal issue and his form after that. It was dipping. I remember being in Dortmund and getting pelters from my pal saying, oh, Kieran Trippier's had a bad couple of games because apparently when you have a player like Kieran Trippier who took the leap to Newcastle, apparently took a little bit of a pay cut from his time in Atletico Madrid to come and join the project at Newcastle and whatnot, even though his wife just wanted to move back to the north of England is the actual story, I think. Uh, despite all that, you can't say he's had a bad couple of games, but uh, thankfully people are now coming round to that because he is having a load of bad games. And I just think it's it's down to tiredness. He's 33, going on 34 now, I think. I think he just needs a couple of weeks away. Just give him, if I was anyhow, I know we are a bit stretched with resources at the back, but one place we're not quite as stretched is at full back now that Dan Burner's fit Tino can play either Kraft's been in the last couple of games although he went off at Chelsea so hopefully he's okay we're fired at full backs so I'd be just saying Kieran I wouldn't even play him in the derby that's how bad it's got it's it's his confidence is shot it's the mistakes that are directly leading to goals when he stepped up for that penalty as well in the penalty shootout he was as white as a ghost it just didn't look well I don't know what's going on with him hopefully obviously everything's okay in his personal life and whatever reason he dropped out the England squad but he is in a bad run of form but the how can you not support the guy? He was the first signing of this new regime at Newcastle United when he maybe didn't have to. Obviously, there would have been more options for him to go to. Um, I guess up Mrs. Trippier as well because she was the main reason he did join Newcastle. But he is in a bad run of form. I would just give him a week or two off. Newcastle go down in that penalty shoot, not only because of that, but also because of a fantastic save from Petrovic in the Chelsea goal from Matt Ritchie. Matt Ritchie's twat at that ball. It's heading towards the top corner, not quite the very tippy top corner, not not postage stamp territory. It's heading towards the upper echelons of the goal, but Petrovic has somehow got across there. The only sort of penalty save you see in FIFA, that's the way I would describe it, because that was, it was just, uh, I don't know how he got across the goal line that quick, but yes, Chelsea on the back, Balance of play deserved to go through, I think. Newcastle, again, looked very tight in the second half, but it's just the circumstances of how the goal went in right at the death. Um, obviously, Trippier's mistake and whatnot. It was, it was avoidable, but it, I'm not too upset. I think now that we're out of the Champions League, now that we're out of the Carabao Cup, we can now obviously get players... Longer gaps between games, obviously not during the festive period because we all know what it's like over here in England for the festive period, but longer gaps between games after Christmas is obviously going to help Newcastle with the injury list that we do have just to try and put a silver lining on what is some pretty bad news of going out the Champions League at the first hurdle and the League Cup at the quarterfinal when the teams that are left in it are now Middlesbrough, who got a nice win over Port Vale, a win they should be getting to make it into the final four. Fulham, who went up 8-7 on pens against Everton after a 1-1 draw. Onana, with probably the worst penalty in penalty shootout history. That might be a bit harsh. It was really bad, though. I don't know if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. He's just he's side-footed it slightly to his right, the goalkeeper's left. The keeper could have put his foot on it. It was hit that with that that little power. Um, so it was just a, it was a shocking pen. If it goes in and the goalkeeper goes the right way, I remember Yakubu 
If you can remember Yakubu's penalty technique, he would always just sort her up and then just sort of tap it in with the goalkeeper going the other way. When that happens, it looks fantastic. When what happened to Onana happens, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. So yeah, uh, Fulham go through because of that. And uh, also Liverpool, as I'm sat here last night, they absolutely demolished West Ham. First and foremost, I don't know why David Moyes picked the team he picked. Why wouldn't he go full strength when you look at the rest of the League Cup? You look at Middlesbrough, you look at Chelsea, you look at Fulham. They're three beatable teams for anybody this season why would West Ham go with Pakatar on the bench and stuff like that like Ben Johnson at left back who had a horrible horrible game I felt sorry for him towards the end he's just not a left back he's a right footer he's a centre half I think he was playing left back he was torn to shreds so why is Moyes not picking a full strength team Ben Johnson rest in peace <laughs> because <laughs> that was a horrible night at the office for him. But also West Ham just didn't lay a glove on Liverpool. They got through until the second half, until they had their first shot, which I think was Kudus, just sort of bending it over the bar. Uh, Keller in the uh, Liverpool goal was no, in no danger whatsoever. And Liverpool just made West Ham look very ordinary on the night. West Ham made certain Liverpool, Liverpool players look a lot better than I think they are. Curtis Jones being the prime example, because for one of the goals, I think it was the fifth goal, he was made to look like prime Lionel Messi jinking through the entire West Ham midfield and defence. And obviously Sabah Sly as well with one hell of a slam, I was going to say there. He just pile-drivered it straight at the bottom corner from about 25 yards. A fantastic finish. Liverpool... You would have to say are overwhelming favourites for the League Cup. Obviously, the, the semi-finals draw was made last night as well. Liverpool against Fulham. Chelsea against Middlesbrough. I think Borough have the home leg in the second leg and Fulham have the home leg in the second leg. In what is the final League Cup ever with a two-legged semi-final. I was reading this morning there from next season onwards. They will just be one-leg semi-finals, which I'm in full agreement with. Put them in a neutral ground, depending on who's in the game. Make it like what the FA Cup used to be. When the FA Cup semi-finals were at Villa Park and uh, Old Trafford, it just made it a bit different. It wasn't... I don't agree with any semi-final being at Wembley. This is more the FA Cup, I should say. Like, not the League Cup. I'm fully against a two-legged League Cup semi-final. I'm fully against a semi-final being played at Wembley for the FA Cup. Neutral venues, one leg. That's the way it should be, and I'm glad it will be. From next season... Right, that's the League Cup. Liverpool's won it, I think, unless Chelsea can do something. You would expect them to get past middles better over the two legs despite the job. Michael Carrick has been doing since he got the job about a year ago now. It feels like a year. Could it be seven years ago? I don't know. All of the Premier League headlines from game week 17. Of course, it was dominated by Tom Lockyer, who was rushed to hospital after suffering a cardiac arrest on the pitch during Bournemouth versus Luton. He had heart surgery after collapsing in the playoff final last May, so the second heart episode if you want to call it that in seven months is obviously very very worrying indeed the game was abandoned excuse me the game was abandoned at 1-1 and as of me sat here talking to you Luton said that Lockyer is awaiting the results of tests before taking the next steps for his recovery are before the next steps of his recovery are determined at the end of the day, football doesn't really matter. I know it's Tom Lockyer's livelihood, but two in seven months of the of a, uh, issues of a similar ilk, you've got to say maybe knocking it on the head in terms of his playing career has got to be the right thing to do just for his health because his health is the most important thing. Luton Football Club will be there with or without Tom Lockyer. He will obviously be involved with Luton, Fo- Luton Town Football Club going on whatever the result of these tests are. But just as... Uh, you know, a bit of human compassion. You just feel like maybe 
knocking the, the the playing career on the head is the right thing to do after, again, two heart episodes, if you want to call it that, of different circumstances in seven months. It's horrible to see. Football doesn't matter. What's the best for his health and his family is what is most important. Um, the Premier League have confirmed that Luton's clash with Bournemouth is set to re- be replayed in full after the game was abandoned in the 59th minute. I think it was Dominic Solanke had scored for Bournemouth, which was heartbreaking for me because I put him in the FPL team this week. Uh, so those points were taken away. Not that that matters, but I just thought I'd throw that in there for no reason whatsoever. The game hasn't been given a, a rescheduled date as of me sat here, but it will happen, obviously, much later in the season after consultation with the relevant party. So hopefully Tom Lockyer is just... Just his health needs to come first. I know football is important, but it's not important as a bloke's health and his family, the implication, all that sort of stuff. So, yes, horrible scenes. I guess that the silver lining on this big old dirty cloud that was the, the, the latest thing involving Tom Lockyer was the nice sort of scenes with the Bournemouth fans clapping uh, Robert uh, Edwards, the, the, the Luton Town manager, um, after the well, after the thing happened and the game was called off. Um but again, it was just a horrible thing to sort of sit through. And I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm glad the cameras missed it because that's always horrible when the cameras um, linger on it. We, we, we go back to Christian Eriksen in the Euros a couple of years ago and why the camera lingered on that for so long while stuff was going down on the pitch, I didn't think was right. But there we go. All the best to Tom Lockyer and to Luton Town as well. And I've got to give it just for the EAFC 2-4 career mode. People who are watching or listening to this podcast, up the Lockyer! That's how I say his name because that's what I think when I see the second off his name. It's absolute bollocks. Just like Liverpool nil, Manchester United nil. First half, what a boring game. A disgrace to football, some may call it. I just think it was Man United sitting back and thinking, we got twatted 7-0 here last season. We've been twatted here, there and everywhere this season. Let's not try and embarrass ourselves again. Van Dijk has a header in the first half that was well saved by Onana, but that was just about that. But as I I thought, as the game went on and went on and went on, the more it opened up and the more it opened up and the more it opened up and by the end it was a pretty decent I'm not going to say it was a good game but it was a pretty decent end-to-end spectacle with no end product whatsoever Trent had a bending sort of side footer that was sent wide after he was teed up by Mo Salah before that we had Garnacho getting himself into a great position he's just about to open his body up and sort of swaz it in the far corner but Trent gets a large toe on it to make the shot as weak as piss Hoyland is through one-on-one. He needs to put that ball in the back of the net, but he hits it straight at Allison's chest. Salah was then making Onana stretch with a, a decent flying save. And then we had the chance for Diaz where, let's be honest, he crapped himself because there was the goalkeeper and two centre-halves flying at him at the same time. You can understand that, but you feel like if he's a bit more brave, Liverpool... Might have got the goal to get the 1-0 win. We've got to also mention Diego Dallo's red card for descent. Double descent. Double descent for Dallo over a throw-in. That was his ball. It was given to Liverpool. It was his ball. But he knows what the game's about now. He's an absolute tit for getting sent off. Excuse me. That was very much like Rick from Rick and Morty, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> um he was very much deserving of his red card because he knows what the what the game's about these days and just, just to keep going and keep going like he did was absolute bollocks. But uh, sorry, Man United got away with that red card happening. It didn't hamper them too much. Liverpool should have won on the balance of play, but I think Man United had the, the clear game plan just to sit back, soak it all up, counter as and when they could do, maybe nick a goal on the counter. And I, think they, I don't think they would say they went for the draw, but it felt like to me they went for the draw and they got the draw. So fair play to them. Klopp has come out. I've just seen this morning. It's not in my notes here that I prepared yesterday, but um, 
saying that if uh, Liverpool fans aren't feeling in the right, I forget the terminology used, but if, if they're not feeling right, don't bother turning up to the next game because the atmosphere for Man United and for West Ham in the Cup wasn't what he was expecting. I don't know what to say about it. As a Newcastle fan, I can only compare it to Newcastle games because that's what I've gone to. It's it's the people in power of these clubs that are ruining the atmosphere inside the ground. These ballot systems that I'm sure Liverpool have in place like Newcastle do, where day trippers, we like to call them in football, don't we? People who aren't necessarily fans of the football club, people who are just, oh, I'll get a membership just on the off chance I might get a ticket. I'm not really bothered if I go to the game or not. More and more of them are in the ground. The higher up you go, I'm learning as a Newcastle fan, the higher we go up the league table here in 2023. It's an absolute nonsense. These balloted systems where it's random need to be scrapped. First come, first serve means you need to earn your way to get to a game. And when you're at the game, you make the most of that game. We had this going on last season at Newcastle. We, Me and my pals, there's like six of us, we used to open our browsers at like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, leave it open for the thing opening at 10. So we had a good place in the queue. You had to get in there quickly, drop everything you were doing at work just to make sure you got to the game. Bring that back. These balloted systems where you pay £37 if you're at Newcastle, you went to a ballot and then it's drawn randomly. That is what's killing the atmosphere at these grounds. It's not having the real, I don't want to say real fans in there, but you know what I'm trying to say, the fans who want to be there. They're not getting in the ground and they're being replaced by people who aren't bothered if they're there or not. And obviously they're not going to make as much noise as people who go radio rental for their football club. So don't blame the fans, Jurgen Klopp. Blame the people who run in the, who run these clubs and at the end of the day just want to rinse the fans for as much money as they can. Man Manchester City 2, Crystal Palace 2. City were knocking on the door for a little while there before Jack Grealish picked up a lovely little ball through the Ivor Needle excuse me, from Phil Foden to slide it into the bottom corner. Grealish was said to be just on side with the old VAR check for Manchester City. By that point of the game, were good value for their lead. Julian Alvarez then saw a free kick go all the way in from the left-hand side. Rodri was in the middle of the six-yard box, on the six-yard line, basically, right in front of the goalkeeper. You can't say he wasn't interfering with play, so the goal was disallowed, rightfully so. Rico Lewis then got the second for Manchester City with his first Premier League goal ever. A sort of snap volley I've described it as very quickly reacted to from Rico Lewis into the bottom corner then the man of the moment Mr Mateta got his first goal in 40 odd league games against Liverpool last weekend this weekend he made it two games and two goals in two games I should say after one in his previous 41 I've got written down there after a nice ball across from Jeffrey Schlupp and you're thinking surely Hudson can't do it again but he went and did it again at the Etihad because it was Mateta who might be making a, a, a claim for next year's Ballon d'Or the way he's been playing the last couple of weeks he went down after a rash sort of swipe from Phil Foden who was doing his best Basil Faldi doing something inappropriate impersonation inside his own penalty area deserved penalty Elise then makes it Desmond 2-2 which leaves Manchester City now five points off the top in fourth place and four points behind Aston Villa in third Pep out Pep out I'm about being serious. Pep in. Pep's been good, hasn't he? Pep's been decent in the Premier League. Every team has a little bit of a faller from time to time. Sir Alex Ferguson wasn't winning the league every year. I mean, when uh, you think about 03, 04, 04, 05, 05, 06, sort of time, Manchester United were as low as third. I know Pep's fourth year. I know he started in fourth in his first year, but that's besides the point. I don't think anyone's saying Pep out. I don't know why I said it. We'll move on. Brentford 1, Aston Villa 2. 
pretty even game, I was thinking, with Martinez making the pick of the saves in the first half down low from range before Keen Lewis Potter arrives late in the box to take the ball off Moreno's toe and he twats it in the bottom corner. A bit like Rico Lewis, but a bit better, I would say. A snap volley for a lovely finish to make it 1-0 to Brentford. Excuse me, I don't know what's happening here with my burping this morning. Well, let me tell you, I'll peel the curtain back. I went for a curry last night. I'm sat here at 10.30am this morning is when we started. I don't know what time it is now. And to be honest with you, my curry's coming back up this morning. Happy Christmas, everybody. Then we get the no guard foul on John McGinn, which got him a yellow. It was deserved. It was reckless, but there was clearly no malicious intent. It was a yellow and nothing more. It's not like Raul Jimenez's at the weekend there, because I know the comparisons will naturally... <coughs> go direct to that this can't be good audio listening i'm very sorry for all the little splutters and whatnot but i'm 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 freewheeling this podcast today i'm doing the best i can i'm not very good leave me alone uh, but Raul Jimenez was up by Sean Longstaff's face and got him with an arse to the face a boot to the, the thigh this wasn't as malicious as that I think it was a deserved yellow and nothing more Ben me though an absolute deserved red card it's high the studs are straight onto Bailey Shane the only thing saving Bailey from a broken leg is the fact his leg was risen and not planted in the turf he's on the stretch he might argue well what other position could his foot be in but then again why is he making the title to begin with it was a red card and that changed the game because Aston Villa got two goals after the red card um, a header at the back stick from Moreno and then Watkins gets the goal against his former club five minutes before the 90 I've written down in my notes here like an American sports broadcaster might say before he screamed at the Villa fans and I thought it was really refreshing after the game because he didn't really do too much in like you know oh, I hate you Brentford fans that sort of stuff he just sort of stood there went ah, and soaked it up all the abuse that he was giving it because he came after the game and he said oh there was one guy in the crowd who was giving me pelters all game so I sort of stood there wound him up didn't really do much in, re- in, in return I like that we're all human if you got to give it you got to take it that's the way I see it and I, I like the human element of what Ollie Watkins did there because as we all know footballers are too much like robots these days they all have feelings yes they do um I should say as well, there was almost a own goal of the century from Leon Bailey, his pass back from all of 35, 40 yards wide on the right, which then hit the side netting. Emmy Martinez was fantastic value from there on out in his battles against Neil Mopé. Uh, Neil Mopé was trying to retrieve the ball after it hit the side netting from Bailey's audacious back pass, or just crap back pass, um, which then he sort of shoulder barged Martinez. He went down like a sack of spuds. And a little bit later on, Mopé then went down, which saw Martinez then pick him up by the shirt and drop him. <laughs> it was fantastic. I, I love this kind of Poohousery in football again. It's the thing that doesn't happen as much as it should do. The poohousery used to go on back in the day when I was getting into football in the nineties. Never mind the eighties, the six seventies, the sixties, and before that. Well, I don't know about the sixties. Everyone was all groovy and loving each other back then, weren't they? Um, but in the nineties, especially the sort of poohousery that you got. To, it was a it was a dark art and it was a fine art and it's gone from our game now. And to see Martinez and Mope go at it like they did, it was absolutely fantastic. And credit to the referee for not going overboard and send them off although I do believe that rule needs to be changed because that red card the Villa got 
where um, Kamara in the midfield has got... He sort of just puts his hand around the cheeks of the Brentford player and gets sent off because that is, by the letter of the law, putting your hands into a player's facial area. It's a red card. I just think that needs to be changed. Just a little squeeze of the cheeks. That's not a red card. You're going to throttle someone. Throttle them. Then you get sent off. But a little tickle of the cheeks, that shouldn't be a red card in my football at all. Villa are now nine unbeaten in the league and find themselves a point off the top. Unai Emery is doing unbelievable work there. That's my hot take for the week. And that's the end of the podcast there because that's as controversial as we'll get here today. Uh, but no, he is, he's working wonders. It's always in the back of your mind, how long can they keep this up? But the longer they do keep it up, the more you got to say they're in a title race. We are only just before Christmas. I remember, you know, again, taking things back to Newcastle like I do. We were top of the league back in 2001 at Christmas time. Fell away, finished fourth. So it can happen. I don't know why Villa can't do it. They've got the squad depth. They've spent a hell of a lot of money on that squad over a few-year period, not just last summer, like, you know, teams like doing one window. They've spent a lot of money over a long period of time. They've got a manager who knows what he's doing, a manager who is making Arsenal look a bit... Well, I don't know. It's just because he came after Wenger. It didn't work out there, was it? Because the football they're playing is a lot different to the football he was playing at Arsenal. At Arsenal, it felt like they were a lot more defensive, a lot more passive, where at Aston Villa now, everyone's on the front foot. They're high up the pitch. John McGinn's picking out passes left, right and centre. It just feels like Emery's the right guy at the right time for Aston Villa after they've built built a squad over the past few years to compete in Europe and in the Premier League as well. So hopefully they can keep that up for a long time to come. Arsenal 2, Brighton 0. It was a big game for Arsenal because back in the spring, this was the game that really buggered the league title for them after a 3-0 home defeat by Brighton. That would have been lingering like it was lingering in my United's head that um, they got beat 7 at Anfield last season so they went and got a draw. And this season Arsenal go and get a 2-0 win. Arteta though will never ever learn. Bad last week for his 150th game in charge of Arsenal and a yellow card this week for Maldonoff. Um I don't know how I feel about I've just sat there and said I love Pooh Housery in football but whiny it's 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 we're splitting off into two types of Pooh Housery here we've got the dark arts that are fantastic uh, Martinez picking up Mope by his shirt dropping him like a sack of spuds but then Arteta just whining and bitching him and Klopp are the worst for it bollocks to them that needs to stop deserved yellow card Arteta will never learn <coughs> excuse me then we get Gabriel Jesus with a free header at the back post that even he couldn't miss and I say that with a little bit of my tongue in my cheek because he does miss a lot of chances more chances than I realised he missed maybe before the start of this season because before this season or before he signed for Arsenal I would, I would always say he was more of a finisher and his build up place like his finishing was the main part of his game compared to his build-up play. I need to take a drink here. I don't know what's wrong with my throat. Excuse me, everybody. Little sound effect for you there as well. But his build-up play, it turns out, was way better than his finishing. So even he could have missed that one with the goal gaping. Brighton did have a moment or two, especially in the second half with Pascal Gross coming close and probably should be scoring with that little stab he had at the near post. But then Havertz... It seems to be all coming up Havertz at the moment after a very, very difficult start to life at Arsenal. I think he tries to dink the ball over the goalkeeper who was advancing and sort of in a crouched down position, but it, it goes a bit wrong and it goes through the goalkeeper. But at the end of the day, who cares? It went in the goal and that's all that matters. Arsenal deserved their win and they now find themselves a point ahead of Liverpool and Aston Villa at the top of the table, but maybe more crucially, five points ahead of Manchester City. Can they hold it on for, well... 
the second half of the season. It all went wrong last season. They've been there before. They've experienced that. They must have learned a few things. I still think the goalkeeping situation's a mess. Hopefully that doesn't bite them on the arse because, to be honest with you, I just want anyone, either Arsenal, Liverpool or Villa, win the league just so it's not Manchester pissing City for another season in a row. Other football headlines from the past week. It's Thursday, the 21st of January. I started recording this at 10.30-ish. Big breaking news as I sat down to do this. I'm sort of looking at a live blog in front of me. The Court of Justice of the European Union has ruled that FIFA and UEFA cannot prohibit clubs from joining a potential Super League. After the project was first unveiled in 2021, UEFA and FIFA both warned that any players and clubs who opted to join the Super League could be banned from taking part in any of their pre-existing competitions. As we all remember, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Tottenham, AC Milan, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Inter, Juventus and Real Madrid Madrid were all founding members of the Super League, but obviously we all saw the backlash from fans, important people in the game, everybody, I think it went to Parliament over here in the UK, it was even mentioned, um, all the backlash just basically saw nine of those club clubs withdraw within days of the announcement, Real Madrid and Barcelona were two that stayed for sure, and that's because of the financial situation over in Spain, Juventus then pulled out in July of 2023, um, but yeah, it was Barcelona and Real Madrid who remained adamant that the Super League will be formed in the coming years and Thursday's verdict will only boost their optimism because, as the, the statement says, the FIFA New for rules making uh, any new inter-club football projects subject to their prior approval, such as the Super League, and prohibiting clubs and players from playing in those competitions are unlawful. The ruler means that FIFA and UEFA must offer the body behind the Super League a fair opportunity to create the competition, but importantly, it does not guarantee its creation, which is music to the ears of everyone. Because you see that story this morning, you think, oh, they're back, oh, they must have heard something, oh, there must have been developments behind the scenes that makes them think the Super League could be a thing, and therefore kill football for basically every level of football that's not involved in the Super League because it was going to be a closed competition. It was going to be like the NFL in America, I guess, with no promotion or relegation, anything like that, just sealing off a few select clubs in the world so they can reap all the benefits of the beautiful game. But there has been developments. As I'm sat here recording, the Independent has like a live blog going on, which is what I'm reading. And it, the latest on there says, Follow, following today's ruling, A22, which is the sort of body behind the Super League, is announcing a new proposal for men's and women's midweek European competitions um, in a change from the previous European Super League plans. Participation will apparently be based on sporting merit. There will be no permanent members and the league will feature promotion and relegation. That is the big issue ticked off. That is absolutely fine. I'm still fully against the Super League because it doesn't feel right. We've got the Champions League. We don't need anything else apart from that. Earn your way into it. Get relegated from it. I guess that's fine. That's nice that they opened it up. Fabrizio Romano had an update just now I've seen on Twitter. Um, he says Super League potential format announced 64 teams, which is a lot bigger than what it was initially. Three divisions named Star, Gold and Blue with promotions and relegation. So it will be closed to the 64 teams, and the teams will be promoted and relegated within those three divisions. So if you're uh, Salford, let's just go there because, you know, they're the, sort of the highest-profile team, Wrexham, you know, these high-profile teams who have big back and who have dreams of getting to the promised land one day. <coughs> you can't do it. You'll be closed off and never let in. 14 games each season per team. 
in these star gold and blue divisions. Seven at home, seven away. It says it will be an open competition, two phases of a league and then playoffs at the end. It says it's an open division, but the fact it's 64 teams and then it's just the three divisions, that would suggest that you can't then earn your way into the blue division from outside of the Super League. This is just me sort of reacting on the fly. Teams have already apparently said yes to the proposal. PSV, Feyenoord, Benfica, Porto, some Italian clubs, Red Star, Belgrade and Anderlecht are all saying they've accepted the new Super League. So if you think that people are going to be over the moon to see Red Star, Belgrade versus Anderlecht as two of the games in this new Super League, I think they've got another thing coming. But... On the flip side of that, they are trying to do some dark arts themselves, this uh, this this company, what was it called, A22, because Rich, sorry, Bernd Reichart, who was the Super League CEO, has today said UEFA monopoly is over. Football is free. Clubs are free, uh, clubs are free from the threat of sanction and free to determine their own futures. For fans, we propose free viewing of all Super League matches. For clubs, revenues and solidarity spending will be guaranteed. So basically, the second part of that feels like a message to Saudi Arabia. Like, whoa, if we form, we'll have similar rules to what you've got over there. For fans... You're going to have to do away with your dodgy boxes, do away with your dodgy websites. All the football will be free, which obviously will win a few people over. But to me, it just feels like one of those things where if you sign up for our cult, you'll get a free slice of cake. But you'll then read the T's and C's and learn that you can't see your own mom for the rest of your life or something like that. It doesn't feel quite right. But again, this is me sort of reacting on the fly. I've got a live blog up in front of me. The latest on the live blog, I should say, um, eight twenty-two are celebrating the end of UEFA's monopoly. Uh, there's going to be a women's one. How would teams qualify for the new Super League? Is on the blog. It is unclear how teams would initially be allocated into leagues. Uh, only that in the initial year of the competition, clubs will be selected based on an index of transparent performance-based criteria. Once there, the bottom two from the top league would be replaced by the second-tier finalists. Uh, the same would be a case in, in, the, in the gold and blue leagues. While for the third tier, twenty of the thirty-two clubs will leave the competition altogether replaced by those merited on domestic performance 20 of the 32 clubs will leave the competition altogether replaced by those i don't know (laughs) i don't know i don't know what's going on here we don't need it i don't know what's making them think they've obviously learned something in the background there outside of this sort of um who made the ruling initially? The, uh, the 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 Court of Justice for the European Union. They've obviously learned something is going to be different from the first time they proposed it. Because I'm looking at all of this and I'm thinking, how are they? How is it going to be any different to the first time this got proposed? I know they're saying it's open. I guess it is open to the entirety of world football. Now reading that last bit there with 30, 20 of the 32 teams dropping out or whatever. Um, but again, just in terms of the entire concept, I can't see what will be different this time from the first time. The backlash that is going to be on top of what has been announced today, as I'm sat here recording, is going to be absolutely huge, potentially bigger than the first time. But on top of that, we now have a Premier League, just, just in terms of the Premier League teams, we now have a Premier League who are trying to prove that they themselves don't need an independent regulatory body sort of controlling stuff in the Premier League. We saw what they did to Everton, which was way over the top in terms of the the, the, the breaches of financial fair play that Everton had done. So if teams then try to break away from the Premier League, this gives the Premier League the perfect opportunity to sanction these clubs like they should have done the first time. The sanctions for the clubs trying to leave the Premier League back in 2021 or whatever it was were nothing. 
so now they're probably going to have a chance to rectify that. Points deductions, that sort of stuff. If Everton have breached FFP one time and they're getting deducted 10 points, imagine if your Manchester, uh, <coughs> excuse me, your Manchester clubs, uh, Liverpool, sort of Tottenham, all these clubs are trying to break away from the league once again. What the Premier League sort of pro rata base, if you want to call it that, in terms of what they did to Everton, could now do to them. It feels like the European Super League again is on a high rate of nothing, but the fact that it's come back like it has come back this morning, as I'm sat here live, it feels like maybe they've learned something that isn't in the public domain yet. So as a football fan, I am worried. But, you know, who cares if teams can't ascend up to the top if that's indeed what they're... That, to be honest, it's not really clear what, what they're trying to do there to me as I'm sat here now with it. The same would be the case of the Golden Blue Leagues. While the third tier, for the third tier, 20 of the 32 clubs will leave the competition altogether, replaced by those merited on domestic performance. That... We'll have to say what happens. Again, I'm sat here reacting live to it coming out this morning. I'm sure someone who knows more about the sport than me will have it broken down into concise chunks in the not-too-distant future. Right, Manchester United England goalkeeper Mary Earps has been named the 2023 BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Uh, the 2022 prize, of course, went to fellow lioness Beth Mead. Up oh, the Beth Mead from the Sulin. And now Earps has followed suit. She took on Nike and she won. She was justified in her actions as well over the not selling of the replica goalkeeper jerseys because I learned this morning that they've sold out twice since Nike put them on sale. So up the Mary Earps in that respect. Um, and also, she told a Spaniard and a few of her team made to guess as well to F off after saving a penalty in the World Cup final of course England didn't go on to win that World Cup but what a moment it was and I guess that's I guess it is no, BBC Sports Personality of the Year is a weird award. Because I remember the year when Jermaine Defoe was doing all that great work with um, Bradley Lowry up at Sunderland, and he didn't get anywhere near it. And I thought that was a disgrace. And this year, Mary Earps has won out, let's be honest. <laughs> she's won out, but she's won the Sports Personality of the Year based on her work outside of football and maybe based on a couple of moments on the pitch as well. I think it was fully deserved, but it just it's the inconsistency of what the Personality of the Year award is from BBC that just makes you... Not invested in the award as maybe you should be, because it, it does feel prestigious. It's been around for decades, but they don't seem to know what it's for, the BBC. But I'm not going to take anything away from Mary Earps. The stuff won like the stuff in the World Cup final that England didn't win. Fully deserved from there. She did get fifth place in the 2023 Ballon d'Or Feminine, which is the highest place for a goalkeeper in the awards history. I guess that's an achievement all of itself there. So congratulations to Mary Earps. Um, Joey Barton is full of... You know what? I was going to swear there, but I've stopped myself. But he is full of it. Uh, Nottingham Forest this week sacked Steve Cooper and replaced him with Nuno Espirito Santo. Um, the decision came after their 2-0 defeat at home to 10-man Spurs on Friday night, extending Forest's run to only one win since the September international break in the Premier League. They sit 17th in the league table currently, only five points above the relegation zone, with the club confirming Cooper's departure on Tuesday. I saw old men crying <laughs> at the reaction to this news, which tells you everything you need to know. Forrest, of course, were outside the top division and as low as League One for 23 years, and then were bottom of the championship table when Steve Cooper took over in September of 2021. By May of 2022, the same season, they were celebrating a playoff final win against Huddersfield and were back in the Premier League for the first time in 23 years. And you've got to say, the stuff he dealt with was admirable. Maybe even more than admirable. 
It was wonderful. The amount of players he had thrown at him. He had 29 signings thrown at him over the course of the 2023, uh, 2022-2023 campaign. And the way he morphed them, molded them into a team that had a good run of, a goodish run of form towards the end of last season and survived by finishing 16th, four points clear of the bottom three, was a minor miracle because there was clearly no plan from Nottingham Forest signing 29 players on top of the players that were already there and players like uh, John Joe Shell again just because it's Newcastle it's fresh in the mind for me they took him from Newcastle for 10 million then he sort of fell out with them and never played again and so what what's what what where's the plan there where's the logic there they just had players who had name value plus a couple of players like Morgan Gibbs White who obviously have a big future in the game ahead of them but he got these these players who weren't really bought to fit into a team. They were just bought because they were a name and he moulded them into a team and he got Premier League survival, which I thought was a minor miracle, as I've just said there. So I'll repeat myself. The way he was treated and the way he didn't lash out at the board, I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um... But ultimately, I think he was a dead man walking for a little while there. There was a couple of times over recent months where the owner basically said, you've got one more game to sort this out or we're going to fire you. I think he came out towards the end of last season as well and basically said, if I had a replacement lined up for Steve Cooper, Steve Cooper wouldn't be at the football club. Steve Cooper is going to be absolutely fine. I can see him becoming Crystal Palace manager before the end of the season just because outside of his trips to the Etihad isn't producing the most imaginative uh, captain in football uh, currently with Crystal Palace and Steve Cooper a young coach on the up in more settled surroundings you'd have to say could work better than he did in Nottingham Forest so I think it'll be I mean Nuno is the sort of guy he wasn't right for Spurs because he didn't play the Spurs way and all that sort of stuff coming after Conte coming after Mourinho as well it just wasn't the right fit um, but I think for a team like Forest and the stabilisation they need. You can't argue with what he did at Wolves. I think Wolves and Forest are a lot closer than what Vol- Vol- Wolves? I'm German now all of a sudden. Wolves and Spurs were at the time, so I think he could be a, a good fit. But I, st- I do still think that Steve Cooper was treated very harshly by the Nottingham Forest board. But he kept his head held high, didn't make a tit of himself, and he will get a Premier League job, I think, in the not-too-distant future. And we mentioned the Spurs there, but they have now been in contact with Nice over Jean-Claire Todibo, excuse me, the centre-half. After learning that a deal could be struck for around £35 million, we are nearing the end of December, which means the January transfer window is just around the corner and Big Ainge has been saying he wants all of his deals done early into the transfer window. So Todibo, who of course is a French internationally, made his debut for the senior team earlier in or earlier this year, back in September while he scored in his second cap in the 14-0 win over Gibraltar. He's just one of those players who, as a fan of the Premier League, you hear good things about. I mean, it's just one of those names, isn't he? And the fact that Spurs could be on the verge of getting him after the injury to Mickey van der Ven, who got a long-term hamstring, hamstring injury. So a centre-half has been a priority for Spurs because they have been playing. I mean, Ben Davies has been absolutely fantastic back there, but Emerson Royale, it's just not a centre-half, but they have been playing him there. So getting him on board, Toribo, it's a good signing. I don't know what else you say about that. It's just one of those names who has a big, fut- has a big future in the game. I don't know why I went all dramatic there, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's just the sort of signing you are going to make if you're a team like Spurs and a player like this becomes available because it will pay dividends over a longer period, you would think. We go from the headlines of the week to the highlight of the week and I've got to go for the scenes at the end of the game at the Etihad. Um, Pep's going mad. There's a shot where 
We're looking at Pep. The fans in the background are giving it the pelt is going mad as well. And whoa, Hutchin. 79, 1 million years age. I think he's 76. Is he 76? However however old he is, he's there and he just turns around and starts laughing. And Pep's going radio rental. The fans are going radio rental. Roy, the the devilish old bastard that he is, he just starts laughing as well. And to be honest with you, that moment should see him in the running for Sports Personality of the Year for next year because it was absolutely fantastic. Hang it in the Louvre, as Erling Haaland and John Stones were called. Not the Louvre, the Louvre. Hang it in the Louvre because it was a fantastic scene and it made me chuckle. So therefore, Lee Hodgson murking off Pep like it's Rio Ferdinand's World Cup wind-ups back in 2006. That has got to be my highlight of the week. Go and search it on x.com if you don't know what I'm talking about. From the highlight of the week, we move to the Darren England and Daniel Cook Memorial twat of the week, and it's Joey Barn again, because he's still going. He's still going through his midlife crisis. I'm joking, but it is wonderful to watch such a massive whopper go through a midlife crisis right in front of our eyes. What is he doing? Why is he... Just stop. Someone take his phone away from him, for goodness sake. But of course, that's not my actual answer for the Darren England and Daniel Cook Memorial Twat of the Week. It's got to be everything Super League related. The company, what's his face? It was promising free football for everybody. Bernd Reichardt. It's A22. It's the uh, European... What was it? I've forgotten who it was now. The Court of Justice of the European Union. Bollocks to all of you. You're all my Twats of the Week for the reasons we discussed earlier in the podcast. Let me know who yours would be in the comments down below. Even better, tweet me them. Why not? Hold give on Twitter. Hold give on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Ross on Rasslin on the Instagram. I don't use Twitter that much because it's crap. Uh, welcome to Brighton and Hove Albion fullback Purvis Est Opinion. What are you talking about? This is where we take an opinion of one of you good listeners and just pull it apart and or agree with it. And this week... <clears throat> Excuse me. We have Mike Storm seventy seven on Instagram. I like to keep people on their toes. So this week I put the call out on Instagram. So follow at hold give because you never know. I might just randomly put the mailbag and the purposeest opinion section on Instagram with your chance to directly answer. And Mike Storm seventy seven over on the gram went and did just that. He says only winners should be in the chat. Winners? Only winners should be in the Champions League. And now normally, well, the past few weeks, it feels like we've been on agreement with many of the purposest opinions. But this one, I'm fully against. Could you imagine how bad that would be, Mike Storm? The competition would be really short. It would be the same handful of teams every single year. When we talk about the Premier League, last few years won by Man City. They'd be in it every year. The Bayern Munich in the German League, they'd be in it every year. PSG largely, I know there's been a couple here and there, but PSG largely over the past 10 years, they'd be the representative from France. It'd be the same teams from these same countries getting to the latter stages of the of the competition every year because you can't see, for example, Copenhagen. I know they've beat Man United this year or Shakhtar just try to pick champions from around Europe. They wouldn't get far in the competition. It would be really short. It would be really boring. It would just be the same every single season. I think we've hit peak Champions League with what the competition is currently. I'm willing to give it a go next season with the league format, but just reading about it, and the sort of convoluted nature of certain stuff, I just I don't think it's going to be very palatable. I think the reason for it is more money-based for the people who aren't on the pitch and just going to tire people out who are on the pitch. Uh, so I think Champions League, the way it is currently, that's the way it should be, and it is a fantastic format. So yes, Mike Storm 77 I disagree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. 
you're, you're, you're a lovely man. Uh, what? No, 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 we're not even doing that segment this week. I was about to say, what happened to that Wonder Kid? Without realising that is Clive F's segment, I'm not going to take that away from Clive F. He better have one for the first week back in January, or I'll reach my hand through my computer screen and throttle him while stroking his lovely beard at the same time. So we move on to the Roberto Mail Baggio Ross at HoldingGive.com. To be honest with you, I had none this week. None at all. So we put the call out on Instagram and thankfully we had a few. So thank you very much if you did reply on the Instagram stories at hold give once again, just in case I need to do that again in future weeks. Um, Mike Storm is the first one that we have in the mailbag. He says, what a historical moment you've seen life for your club. Minus seeing TFC's first goal. I don't know who TFC are. It can't be Tottenham. Well, it'd be THFC, wouldn't it? Toronto? I don't know. But he saw their first goal. So what historical moment have you seen live for your club? I've seen lots. I had a, a mother who would take me to the odd game back in the 90s. I had a season ticket between the years of 2012 to 2015 and then 20. 16 to 2017 and then got rid of it because I was against Mike Ashley's running of the football club and thought, I'm not giving you my money to not reinvest in the club. I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, So pick any historical moment from Newcastle out of that one. I guess I'd have to go for... What would I have to go... If I had to pick one historical moment, I'd have to go for Honest Gutierrez. For Newcastle, final day of the season, uh, Newcastle need to win to stave off relegation. Uh, he had just come back after recovering from cancer um, and he was one of our best players for the second half of that 14-15 campaign. And he just pops up and he just he, he, he puts the ball in the bottom corner. There was a deflection, but who cares? He then runs over because he was out of contract at the end of the season and apparently was informed by phone call, I think. I forgot that right. My memory served me correctly there, uh, that he wasn't getting renewed after the battle he'd been through in his own personal life, which was absolutely horrendous by the football club to do to someone who had given us so many solid years of service. Um, but yeah, he ran over, the sort of just stood in front of the director's box and just... I've never had this confirmed, but it looked like he just mouthed, Mike Ashley, you wanker! And then ran away. So that was fantastic. That's the one that came to mind. Obviously, there the, the might be bigger ones in the course of my season ticket slash non-season ticket viewing years. Newcastle getting the Champions League at home to Leicester. Um, I wasn't there for... I was there for both legs of the Dortmund... Both legs. Both games against Dortmund. I was there for the Milan game at home in the Champions League this year. So I didn't have the best of time being there live, to be honest with you. But I guess seeing me club play at Signal Egunda Park was obviously a higher bucket list stadium anyway. But to see Newcastle play, there was a Brucey bonus. But pick, take a pick from those years I said earlier for me season ticket ones. I'm sure I'm missing the best one. Costaman17 then got in contact and said, who will be the next manager to get the axe? And as I'm going to answer this question, I'm just going to base it on the Premier League. I'm going to look at the Premier League table and see what's going on. Could it be Vincent Company? Now, Burnley, I think a lot of people expected to survive the way they got promoted last season, the way they played football on the deck, all that sort of good stuff. Vincent Company, a man on the rise. Burnley, as I'm sat here right now, are second bottom of the table on eight points. Well, the joint bottom was Sheffield United, who have already changed their manager. Luton are never going to get rid of Rob Edwards. Uh, Forrest, excuse me, have changed their manager. Shawnee Dyche, baby's on 16 points, but he's really on 26 points, which would have Everton, by the way which would have them 10th, a point above Chelsea. So he's never getting the sack. Maybe it's Roy. I'm going to nail it down to one or two. I'm going to say it's either going to be Roy Hodgson, 
Oh, it's going to be Vincent Company. And if I had to hedge my bets now that Steve Cooper is available, I'm going to say Roy Hodgson. Just because the football has been so unimaginative by Crystal Palace this season, there are murmurs of discontent by Crystal Palace fans, I see. And I just think with someone like Cooper becoming available, I think he fits Crystal Palace as well. And I think Roy is just a stopgap appointment until they can find the next manager to sort of build something with over the next few years. So I'm going to nail my flag to the mast. Roy Hodgson will be the next to go, replaced by Steve Cooper. Laugh Out Lloyd, 25, then got in contact and said, the thoughts on the Lewis Hall situation asked from a Chelsea fan. Now, as a Chelsea fan, I imagine you're very confused looking at how Lewis Hall is being handled by Newcastle United. Let me get his stats up for the season. Because from a Newcastle perspective, let me tell you, it's clear as time has gone on that Eddie Howe just doesn't fancy him as a footballer. He joined on loan in the summer with a big reputation, a grown reputation, after making a few, a handful of appearances for Chelsea's first team towards the end of last season. He only turned 19 on the 8th of September this year. He was born in 2004, which is a little bit sickening. But yeah, I think it's just clear that Eddie Howe doesn't fancy him. There's been... Ample opportunity to give him a run in the team with the injuries that has been happening to Newcastle this season, or maybe Kieran Trippier's dip in form. That might be a, res- as a result of him being tired. Why not put Tina Livermento, who's a fantastic player at right back? Why not bring in Lewis Hall if you have any faith in him whatsoever? But with Newcastle signing him on loan, needing to hit a certain performance-related criteria to then trigger the obligation to pay £28 million for him in the summer, the fact that Newcastle clearly don't want to get to that obligation means they don't fancy him and obviously don't think he's worth the £28 million they would have to pay for him. It's weird, but again, Eddie Howe works with Lewis Hall day-to-day. He hasn't really been given any opportunities at all in the first team let me get his appearances up this season so four in the Premier League so far and two in the EFL Cup one goal obviously away at Manchester United which was a lovely volley into the far bottom corner but seven appearances across all competitions one in the Champions League as well um I remember was it the the home game against Manchester City he played in midfield and just he's not the tallest He's not the most physical, so he was like a fish up a tree, especially against the midfield like Manchester City's, even though Rodri wasn't there for that game, if memory serves. So it's an odd one, but Eddie Howe works from day to day. I trust Eddie Howe's judgment on a player after the stuff he's done to the players who were at Newcastle before he arrived. Joe Lytton, Jacob Murphy, Callum Wilson, all these players like that who have just gone on to a different level compared to what they were doing before Eddie Howe arrived. So his judge of a player, I have, I have no doubt in whatsoever. So if Eddie Hall doesn't fa- Eddie Hall? <laughs> the world's strongest man, Eddie Hall. So if Eddie Howe doesn't fancy Lewis Hall, I'm in full agreement with Eddie Howe. But again... When we signed him, we're thinking, wow, we've got a left back for the next 10 years. They might take a while to get into the first 11, but once he's in there, surely that's him done. He's trading with England after he signs for Newcastle. You know, when England sort of invite a few younger players from the different age groups to come and train with the first main England squad. He was one of those players in the autumn there. Um, so it is weird to see, but it's clear that He's just not a £28 million player in Newcastle United or Eddie Howe's opinion. So he will be going back to Chelsea. And I wouldn't be surprised if he turned into a decent, decent player for Chelsea. Because as I say, that game away at Man United in the Cup when he scored that goal, he looked at home. He looked perfectly fine playing against Man United that night. So I don't know what to make of it, but I trust Eddie Howe. Right, that's it for a... Fly by the seat of our pants, whistle-stop tour through a holding give football podcast. I apologise. For my voice today, I don't know what's going on. I'll just check what the latest entry is into the um, the live blog about the Super League. Atletico have rejected 
rejected the ESL proposal. Um, they've analysed the rule of the European Court of Justice and would like to express the following in their statement. Statement reads, one, the resolution regarding the framework for prior authorisation of other competitions refers to the outdated UEFA statutes that were already amended in June of 2022. The European Club Association and UEFA have established a partnership that renders the consideration of UEFA as a monopoly meaningless. Uh, through agreements with this joint venture, clubs decide 50% on the sale of sponsorship and television rights, revenue distribution and competition formats. And number three, the European football community does not support the European Super League. Germany, France, England, Italy, Spain, except for Real Madrid and Barcelona, etc. oppose the Super League. We advocate the protecting of the broader football family, preserve in domestic leagues and securing qualification for European competition through on-field performance each season. Yes! Up the Atletico. Man United have released a statement. They have said our position has not changed. They rejected as well. Ah, well, as, as I was saying earlier, what were they expecting to go differently? I was thinking they might have heard something or learned something or done something behind the scenes, but clearly they have not because two of the teams, as I'm sat here, have already said, ah, ah, no, no, it's not going to happen. So hopefully that's a sign of what's to come. Although, if someone from the Premier League is listening, that free football thing, you know, for the fans... That wouldn't go amiss for the Premier League and the Champions League and just all football, really. Thank you for listening. Ross at HoldenGift.com is your email address for the mailbag. Just keep your eyes on the socials for live streams upcoming, the EFC 2-4 career mode and stuff like that. Again, apologies for me, voice. I'm doing the best I can. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. I'll be Christmas will be come and gone by the next time I'll be sat here, excuse me, chatting at your faces. So hopefully you have a wonderful time, a wonderful holiday season, whatever you're doing with you and yours. I have been Ross from That There Hold and Give. Thank you for listening to me ramble for an hour, and I'll see you all very soon indeed. All the best. <laughs>